From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. Mother's Day is fast approaching, which means it's not only time to think about how we can honor and celebrate our own mothers and maternal figures, but how we can better understand and support working mothers across the U.S. My guests for this discussion are Danielle Weisberg and Carly Zakin, co-founders and CEOs of The Skim. Together, we're going to explore the key findings from The Skim's State of Women report, which covered essential topics, including things like money and career, health and well-being family and motherhood, and even politics and representation. Along the way, we'll also learn about Skim's viral Show Us Your Leave initiative and how we can use our voices and platforms to advocate for transparency, visibility, and some long overdue change to the policies and practices that shape our working lives. So Danielle, Carly, I'm so excited you're here today. Thank you so much for having us. We're really uh, excited to be here and talk about women and and work. And uh, there's so much to go into. Thank you for having us. I am very excited. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I've been looking forward to this for a while. But just a little bit on you guys and the skim, and then we'll get rolling. All right. So as mentioned, Danielle and Carly are co-founders and co-CEOs of the skim. It's a mission-driven media company dedicated to giving millennial women the information they need to live their smartest lives. The skim's book, How to Skim Your Life, became an instant number one New York Times bestseller, and the two former news producers launched The Skim from their couch and have built a brand that continues to be a trusted source to their more than 7 million daily subscribers. And since the last presidential election, the company's civic engagement campaign, No Excuses, has activated their audience to get involved in the political process by getting over 300,000 people ready registered to vote. So first of all, thank you for that. We need everyone out there voting. And thrilled to have you here today. Can I actually correct that stat? Please do. So it's actually over 2 million people have taken actions with us in the last three elections um, around, uh, you know, rather voter, rest- voter registration or showing up to vote. So it is, it's a big point of pride for us. It should be. I love a correction that has such good news <laughs> baked into it. So I like good news corrections. That. Yeah, it's the best kind. Um, so I want to start with the magic of the two of you together and the skim. How did you meet and what prompted you to create the skim together? Oh, wow. Um, It's kind of like Harry met Sally, like who wants to tell her story? Um, So Carly and I met a long, long time ago. We, um, Carly went to Penn um, and I went to Tufts and we actually met on a study abroad trip uh, in Rome, thanks to Temple University. Um, And we had a great time. We did not talk about anything that, uh, you know, was serious. I went our separate ways and actually both reconnected after we had graduated when we were working for NBC News. Um, realized our love of news and kind of, you know, became fast friends, followed each other, working for different, working for news organizations in D.C., uh, New York, New Jersey, and and wound up in 2012 being roommates in a very small apartment in New York, both working at 30 Rock um, and seeing a few, few things. Um, and I think, you know, like any roommates, it's like you see it, you come home, you vent about it. 
And at some point we were like, are, are we going to like do anything or are we just going to complain all the time? And I think for most people, the answer would honestly be like complain. I think that the stars aligned um, basically on on all of this in, in a way. Um, I think that a lot of our story is having a great idea, paying attention to trends that are out there, um, but also taking advantage of timing because it's never easy to, to quit your job and start something. Um, but we were 25 years old. I think we realized that it was never going to be easier than when, you know, the only dependent you have is yourself. Um, we needed to pay our rent. But aside from that, you know, we didn't have families at the time. Um, we also knew that working in news in an election year like 2012, you can get freelance opportunities. Um, but beyond that, we had a couple thousand dollars saved. And what we saw was that news was uh, a really busy space. And our friends who are indicative of women working, educated, very, very busy, um, didn't have any sources that they trusted or that they love or that fit into their uh, daily routines. Um, and really, we felt like that was our passion. That's what we had been doing as professional producers and also what we were interested in doing as people was making sure that... Um, no one had that kind of deer in the headlights moment of walking to a conversation feeling unsure of themselves. Um, we never felt like that because it was our job. We were paid to read what was going on in the world every day. And so we started the skim uh, from our living room couch with an email because that's how we knew what to set up. Um, it's also <laughs> what we knew we actually read first thing in the morning. And if we could get into people's routines, if we could be something that they trusted for serious things that were going on in the world before they talked to anyone else, we knew that that type of relationship could uh, be the foundation for a very big business. It, I have to say, having followed you guys, especially at the very beginning, it was, and not really knowing a lot about your backgrounds, I was so impressed at how excellent the summary was accurate smart thorough without but brief and funny and witty it was a really special combination that's quite rare um yeah carly tell me more about how you evolved since those days on the couch because there's two components here there's the content that you're producing yeah. and delivering and there's also this entrepreneurial venture that you're in yeah, no, so it's it's a great question. And I think um, I'll answer sort of the personal, like Danielle and I as entrepreneurs, and then I'll, I'll, I'll come back to um, how the company has evolved. Uh, you know, it's it's funny, we were, we were just talking about this right before, which is why we were late, we're sorry, uh, which is that um, our first challenge, like the very first thing we had to do was to scale ourselves as people. We like, to your point, we had a very distinctive voice that we had created um, to, to share information and to educate this, this audience. And we had to prove that it wasn't reliant on just the two of us to be up all night uh, <laughs> and to, to press send at, you know, five fifty seven AM, which it was the two of us for a very long time. Uh, and that was the very, very first thing that we did. Um, and I think, you know, when I look back, you know, it's been 10 and a half years that we've been doing this a little over that. We 
became businesswomen through this journey where I, you know, we we used to like really self-identify as, you know, we're such liberal arts kids. I went to UPenn. I did not take one (laughs) class in Wharton. Uh, I was very much the college and it's a huge regret I have actually um, because I was, you know, business and that side of, of, of things was not an area I felt comfortable in. I don't think quantitatively first. I think qualitatively first. Um, I am very creative. I didn't think you could be creative in, in, with business. Like I, you know, just really like elementary ignorance around what it meant to like be in business. And when I look now, 10 and a half years in, when I think about how we have evolved, um, you know, yes, we've built a big company that reaches millions of women and we have, you know, an amazing large team and we've raised capital, you know, in multiple rounds of funding. We're very proud of that. But I think honestly, like we're, we have pride around how we've done it. And pride around, um, I think, how we've grown, where I feel like I've gone to like business school, law school, med school during COVID, like all the (laughs) things uh, where I think, you know, today, uh, when I look at us as leaders, I think we um, we are very entrepreneurial. We are very much, um, you know, always operating actually with a financial lens first and a marketing lens first. Um, and I and it's sometimes I hear myself and I'm like, wow, I don't re- do not recognize myself. And if you had told me ten and a half years ago, these are the types of meetings I'd be leading, I'd be like, no way. So I think that you know, for me, is um, you know something that we're really proud of. I think what that actually speaks to is how our audience has grown up with us. And that's actually, yeah. And I think that's actually like, how does the skim evolve where, you know, Danielle mentioned, we started this when she was 25, I was 26. And uh, (laughs) we, uh, we started this in a very particular specific moment in life where it was just us. And for the majority of who we were reaching, it was just them. And they were figuring out, you know, maybe their first or second or third job, what their career path looked like, how to, um, you know, create a trajectory of financial independence and wealth and, and all of that. Ten and a half years in, over half of our audience has become a parent. Over half of our audience is making over uh, six figures every year. Um, and so this is a woman that is very emblematic of the stats that we all read about which is she is leading in paychecks and in degrees. She is the breadwinner in her family. She's the financial decision maker. 95% of her are the financial decision makers. And there's so much, am I allowed to curse on this show? Yeah. All right. There's so much shit on her plate. (laughs) And there's just, she's got so much burdens and so many burdens. And I think what has evolved is sort of two things about the voice of the skim and what we do. One is that the world has changed a lot. And I think the gravity of what we do has just really come into play where it used to say, you know, it was a gift to do what we did and a privilege. And now I would say it is a responsibility that we have every day. Um, And then the, the other thing I would say, you know, we talk about this a lot is like, if you can just get informed, you are really lucky. If you can wake up every day and have time to just be informed, like you're doing okay. That is a gift in and of itself because there is so much up against her and against us as a generation that like we actually are trying to help her take action in the areas of her life. And that's a real change from how we started 10 and a half years ago, where we never would have talked about this kind of stuff to where she is and we are today. It's, um, 
it resonates with me personally because I now with my daughter in college, mm -hmm. I get the pleasure every morning of I take 45 minutes and I read the news while I have my coffee and have breakfast. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't get to do that for a very long time. Yeah, so that's amazing. Sounds really lovely. True. I'm like, one day, <laughs> one, one day I'll be back there. Do you yeah, read the actual paper too? That's my um, dream. It depends. It shifts. Um, sometimes I read the paper when I'm in the kitchen. I read it off of my iPad when I'm upstairs having my tea in bed. But either way, I want tea in bed. This is lovely. It's a, there are things <laughs> to look forward to, ladies. I promise. Um, so Danielle, as Carly was saying, you know, this started as a privilege that you get to share the news. And then you see, and now you see it as a responsibility. It's a huge, mm -hmm. important thing. And if people are going to understand the world through your lens, through your words, certainly. But it's also, I think, a calling. When I see what you're doing and the different ways that the skim is expanding, it feels to me like you're not just delivering the news. You have an agenda. Am I wrong what? in that interpretation? No, I think we do have an agenda. The difference is that our agenda is not about uh, making people vote one way. And it's not about, uh, our agenda is not about being left-leaning or right-leaning. Like we're we're nonpartisan. Our agenda is to give factual information to an audience that is inundated mm -hmm. uh, with so much noise out there in every aspect of her lives and unfairly has too many decisions to make and too many people to support in her life. Um, our agenda is to make it easier for her to live smarter. And what that means is giving her enough of the right information to make decisions for herself and her family. And I think what gets often overlooked is with that agenda, it's about um, if we set women up for success, that means we are setting up families for success economically, socially, um, in terms of generations. Um, and I think that that is often missed and, and glossed over. Um, so we view what we do as, you know, it's it's really nice. It's, it's a luxury if if you're able to just be able to like get informed. That is amazing. That is something to be celebrated. What we view our audience as as doing at this, you know, stage in their life is they have to be informed because they need that information to make good decisions. Mm -hmm. And that could be, how do you negotiate for a raise? And that raise is rarely, you know, just for, for you, although there is, you know, a growing population because of the demands on our plate of women that are just saying, you know what, I don't think I want kids or maybe I, I don't want to get married. Um, and, we celebrate that decision, but we want you to have the information to make it your choice. Um, there is definitely a, a growing part of our audience that feels inundated with making good decisions about their own health. And uh, that could be making sure you have thought through fertility options to thinking through all of the decisions you're making in caregiving. And that caregiving is both for your parents and your kids at the same time. Yep. So a lot goes into our agenda. And at the end of the day, I think it is, we don't want our audience to ever feel like they're alone. Um, if we can make it just a little bit easier to make a decision, that to me feels like you've won. And I think, you know, as I as I'm kind of talking and riffing on this answer, I think our agenda is to combat the systems that have been built around making it hard for her to make good decisions, right? Because whether it's like uh, credit card balance compounding or not knowing 
that, you know, you're you're owed something from your insurance company because you don't have enough time to dig through it. Um, or, you know, thinking about the various ways that um, if you had just thought about saving or contributing to a 401k when you were 20 something, you'd be in a better position now. Mm-hmm. Like all of those things, those systems were not built for a savvy consumer. And they were certainly not built for a consumer who has as much on her plate um, as our audience in order to just make it easier for her to succeed. So we want to help. Um also reinforce this this vision matched with the voice that you have makes a lot of sense when you consider them together because mm-hmm. it is um a nonpartisan reporting and at the same time there's a freshness to it a directness to it a usefulness to it that i'd argue is not just about being an informed consumer but an informed citizen I would agree. And, you know, I think one of the things that I probably should have done a better job of answering your first question was, uh, you know, when you talk about like, well, how has the, the the business and the voice evolved? Well, for one thing, we don't just have the daily skim anymore. Um, and, you know, that was our, that's our signature product. It's what, you know, we are most well known for it. We're so proud of, but because of the demands of this audience, because of our relationship with our consumer, and honestly, because we've also grown up, we've expanded into really what we call all of the necessity areas of her life. Like what are the categories that just suck? And that you're like, why did nobody teach me this in college? <laughs> right. You pen. Uh, like, why did nobody teach me this? And that is, you know, for us, it's it's skim money, which is personal finance. It's health and navigating it, which is skim well. Um, it's starting families and parenting, which we're just launching. Um, and it's big product and consumer uh, and um, commerce decisions. And so, you know, we've seen, you know, expanding into those areas has allowed us to serve her on multiple platforms and multiple verticals. Um, and really just answer questions that she has and needs in multiple areas of her life. So one of the things I'm particularly excited about and impressed by, to be honest, is your report on the state of women. Tell me about what prompted the study, because this was a meaningful research report with Harris, right? Yes. Um, so we teamed up with with Harris uh, to do something that we've been really wanting to do for a long time, which is studying the state of, of women in this country and to study them just because it is so important to know about them, not in comparison to different audiences. Um, and I think that uh, it's it, it boggles my mind that that is not done more often, given how much women in, you know, makeup of the workforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that when you talk about work, you can't not talk about women at work because we contribute to, we are the buyers, we're the spenders, and we are the ones actually making these decisions. Um, So we felt like after a really turbulent uh, political environment, after a pandemic, after, you know, uh, watching um, a lot of push for for social reform, um, we felt like it was imperative to check in on on women. And so we teamed up with Harris and we did run the study. And I think what we found is not shocking, um, which is, you know, it's it's not good. The state of women is is not good right now. It is a tough uh, position to be in when you are balancing so many things and not feeling like you have help. And I think what we see is that this audience is past the point of waiting for help to come. Um, in some ways, 
there is a lot of hope and optimism that they are taking it upon themselves to move forward. Uh, they are making their own communities. They are making their own solutions. There's no longer kind of this guise of, you know, government's going to help. Or um, when this person gets elected, they're going to help. Or even private business is, is going to come in with a, a meaningful solution. Um, and I think that really um, adds to a lot of why we're seeing more women consider running for office. It's why we are seeing them also think really long and hard before making um, these these kind of life milestone decisions of having kids or buying homes or getting married. It all is really connected. Um, and I think that to me, it's it's not surprising. It's disheartening, but actually made sense to hear about uh, the pressing concerns around mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and the, you know, high rates of depression and, and anxiety, um, given that they are feeling like they can make their own way, but it has to be on them and their community. We're going to dive much more into this, but I have a couple of questions before we get into the heart of it, because the, the report was rich and important. Um, okay. And so talk to me about, you worked with Harris Polls. How did you approach the research process and methodology and who did you survey? So um, partially why we worked with Harris is because they're the experts in that. And we really wanted to have, you know, that that kind of third party credibility around it. Um, we surveyed thousands of women that were made up of our, our target demo. And so just to kind of speak a little bit to that demo. Um, we talk about millennial women. There's a lot of different ways you can, um, depending on who you talk to, you can you can describe their age range. So we really look at women age 24 to 45. Um, this survey went a little bit higher than that to, to women in their 50s, but not much higher than that. And what we really, why we focus on this generation of women um, is, is actually like has always been a very strategic business decision. Mm -hmm. And so want to sort of explain why, which is, you know, I think there's sort of an assumption of like, well, you guys are in that generation, which like, sure, there's the natural, you know, authentic part to that. But actually, when you look at who is spending the most, like, what is the GDP of different generations of women? This group of women is influencing over $3.7 trillion annually the power of spending is sitting with her. So when we talk about kind of the state of women, why should you care if you're not one of her that we surveyed? It's actually like we're talking about an economic problem. We're talking about a societal issue that has real, real economic effects if we don't fix this state of women. And it goes down to who is leading, uh, who's entering our workforce and leading our workforce, who is actually getting in the C-suite, who's getting in the boardroom, and who's actually becoming our legislators. We're watching that change happen where if we had had this conversation over 10 years ago when we started the skin, we would have a different set of stats. Mm -hmm. So her, you know, her power is happening now. And so that's why we've really focused on this generation. It makes a great deal of sense. I just want to put a call out there that I I'm feel ready. like we've missed an important group that I have. Okay. I'm right on that threshold, just turned 57. <laughs> um, but it's also that as we've learned, um, our work lives don't stop at 57. Um, we are the sandwich generation taking care of still our children and our parents at the same time. Mm -hmm. and, and for many, hopefully women who are in leadership roles, but mm -hmm. for not, um, women who are facing a dire economic climate post-pandemic um, yep. are entering a stage well, of their life. Well, you, you make such an important point and one that we talk a lot in relation to 
the group that I just mentioned, but it obviously affects, you know, your generation as well. Um, so I want to talk about that because I think your generation is really experiencing the sort of sandwich effect um, of, you know, taking care of dependents that are probably like in college right now. Um, and then also parents, if, you know, they're lucky to still have them around. And I think what's happening with the generation right behind you with millennial women is that they are experiencing that really terrible sandwich, but actually with that confluence happening earlier. So they are um, having children. If they decide to have children, they're having them later. So their parents are older and their parents are getting pushed out of work at a younger age. And we all know, and I've heard, you know, all the stats of like, I don't know if our parents are going to have social security. Like, I don't know if I'm going to get social security, but I don't know if my parents will have it. And there, we are also in a caregiving crisis. So when we talk about, you know, all this really depressing, scary stats, like it really actually comes down to an economic argument of why we all need to care. You also will not be surprised that one of our top commerce um, recommendations is wine, because this is all really, really <laughs> depressing and scary. We need to ease the pain. We need somehow. to ease that pain. Um, but I, but I think you know, you make a really good point as that what you're talking about that your generation is experiencing is actually about to be, if not already being felt by millennial women. And we're not talking actually about that enough. No. And it's, and it's really a request because the work that you're doing to reach this millennial audience, so important, so essential, and you're so potent. I want to see. Well, here's my, my request then does Wharton want to team up with the skim to do this? We'll, We'll expand the demo. We'll find the right sponsor to work with. I see a whole business opportunity happening. We're going to talk. This is Great. going to be fun. So Carly, with the State of the Women report, there were key categories that were addressed, kind of chapters to the report. Um, tell me a little bit about, did you go into the research process looking for answers on those, or were they a byproduct of the information that you gathered? Um, A little bit of both, honestly. I think, you know, the categories that we honed in on also reflect the categories that the skim is in, which also the reason that the skim is in is because they're what we call these life necessity categories. So the categories we're talking about is her financial stability and financial health, her mental and physical health, um, and, uh, you know, her her life in the workplace. Um, So kind of, you know, what are all the things that... um, are sort of just unavoidable as an adult. Uh, and so, you know, it's not a surprise necessarily that these were the, the types of things we wanted to ask her. But I think what, you know, what I would call maybe surprising a little bit was um, honestly the depth of the answers that we got. We knew it was bad. We knew that the state of women wasn't great. We also did this, you know, coming out of the pandemic. We knew especially women were hit so hard during the pandemic. I think the level of what we heard in response to the survey was, um, you know, a lot of jaws dropping, at, at, you know, Skim HQ of, wow, like, I can't believe it's as bad as this. And I think that is, um, you know, something we're very grateful for that we got that kind of candid responses from her and, and grateful to have been able to to do a study like this. Um, but I think what we are most encouraged by is that we have the platform to share these results and and actually help create some of the change. Yeah, it's part of what made this refreshing and important in a related way. Danielle, one of the things that struck me, both because it's true and because so few people talk about it, is why women are so tired. 
is the level and depth of the exhaustion that women are experiencing. I'm like sitting here with caffeine. I know, as I've been like stifling my yawns into my my sweater. Um, well, I think, you know, I'll just talk about it anecdotally. And then I, I think that really shows uh, a lot, which is, you know, Carly and I run a business. I have a two and a half year old at home and a one year old who I love, uh, who wake up in the middle of the night sometimes. Um, I have a family uh, and parents that I, you know, also am, am very involved in caregiving in all sides. And I think that that story I say, because it's not unique. It is very much indicative of most women that I talk to today. Um, And I think that what you uh, see and what you hear about is not necessarily uh, speaking to that reality, meaning you go on Instagram, uh, you go look at, you know, kind of any anything that's profiled and there is a myth of a super mom. And you are constantly rewarded for all that you take on. You know, I think, especially with Mother's Day coming up, if I see another ad uh, that's like, you know, don't know how mom does it. How does she do it all? And it's like, well, she does it all because she's on the verge of a breakdown all the time. (laughs) Like she's stressed as fuck. She is um, really like, you know, just has too much and not enough support. And I think that that is so important. And that was the number one concern that we saw for this audience is their mental health. And to think about the power of that when we're still in a society where there is not only a stigma around mental health, but there is a huge stigma around women advocating for themselves in general. To have a a study finally reflect that anecdotal feeling of it just being too much, that to us was something that we knew was really, um, I think, indicative of the type of relationship we have with our audience, Um, that they are telling us this because they want us to talk about it. They want to be heard. And it needs to be fixed. Um, I think that, you know, what what we have seen is that, um, you know, 82% of women said that while there's so much talk about how overburdened women are, no one's actually helping them ease the burden. And if you look at that, then it's not a surprise when you look at how that affects uh, their their mental health. It's not a surprise then when when you look at how they're going to spend their money. It's about brands that are actually authentic, not necessarily the ones that are are going to help her, but the ones that are are saying like the truth about what they're going to get. Um, and I think that's a very big difference. Um, I also think that you know this is a really really smart audience, and sixty six percent of them agreed that social systems don't adequately support women's needs. So they recognize they're not being supportive. They actually know that there's not anything in place and they are calling out this feeling of being overwhelmed. Um, We're all foreseeing women in positions of power. And I think that we were disheartened to see that 71% of women, you know, identify as being in a C-suite role. It's just that of chief worry officer. Um, and I can tell you, you know, our team really had a lot of back and forth over that term, because when I first heard it, I like laughed 
And then I was like, actually, I really hate this term because it's a cute term for something that is Mm -hmm. really dangerous. Um, And I think that is how we've kind of all felt in thinking about this, where there is a collective sense of feeling a relief in this data really matching the anecdotal experience of just that exhaustion, mental, physical. Um, And then at the same time, really thinking about the danger. And when I talk about danger, you know, one thing that I think gets um, really lost is that it's very easy as a society, and I say this because we do it constantly, to push this aside and say, okay, there's the data. Like, yeah, there's a problem. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thanks for telling me about it. But nothing Um, happens. But nothing happens. And I think it is coming to a head in such a dangerous way for our country because we have $3.1 trillion at risk, the U.S. economy. If we do not support women staying in the workforce and we don't support women as they seek to um, handle these things, if we want to have a, a birth rate that doesn't decline, if we want nice things like Social Security, right, you have to have enough people working. If women are are making up a bulk of of this workforce, then you have to keep them in it. it it's I, I think for Carly and I, that is the message that this is, of course, a social problem, but social problems way too often get dismissed. So at the heart of it, there is a serious economic issue that is not partisan. It is not a luxury to to talk to talk about um, things like caregiving, things like um leave. They all are important policies because they contribute to the economic health of our society. I want to ask you a question about there a, a number of things, specifically um, the local economics of pay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, aside from the way that our work lives and the money that we earn is part of a whole financial system that we feed. You know, the our contribution to the economy is mm-hmm. significant. There's also our local economic realities and the money that we take home in the pay gap. Yeah. You guys did some interesting work on the impact of transparency around pay. Carly, can you share a little bit about this and what you learned about what happens when organizations are transparent about pay? So I think actually like kind of the underlying question behind your question, if I may, is really like, what can our male allies do? Like when they hear about this, what can they do? And I think I want to answer that first and come back to this, which is the first thing first is like, when we talk about the state of women, like we wanted to give this a kind of more serious like title, we could have come up with something very skim-like and catchy. And we purposely didn't because we wanted it. This is an economic report. And economic reports are not just read by different, you know, separate genders. They should be read by society. And this is really one that we need everybody to pay attention to. Um, Because as Danielle said, if you have over $3 trillion at risk, like this is something that we all need to care about. And so when we talk about like, well, what can, what can we do at a local level? What can we do, um, you know, from, um, a uh, male, you know, counterpart, male allies, like, what does that mean? What is on the line? The first thing first is like the people that need to be fighting for this is not just women. Oh, we yeah. need everyone. We need our male counterparts 
to be talking about these issues because so much is at stake. So when we talk about like, what is the importance of transparency? What is the importance of sort of um, really parity? Um, when we when that is, comes to light, it is so obvious when you see how women um, are are getting less or settling for less. And what is the ramifications of that? Well, first it starts at home, then it starts, then it bleeds into the local economy and we're seeing it now play out on a national level. And, you know, we can obviously talk about this from a global lens too, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep it smaller for today's conversation. Um, the first things first is like, we need one men to read this report too. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, two is I think that there are things you know, when we talk about in the workplace, what can change? Like we need men one, if they're in positions of power to obviously see the problem and, and help change that. So whether that is bringing more women to the table, especially women of color, creating environments that makes it easier for them to get elevated and promoted um, in an, a fairer way. But also then there are, there's, I, would, I wouldn't even call this a small thing, but I think an equitable thing where there's a reason that we've been calling paid family leave paid family leave. Yes. We need men to take that leave if yes. they're having a family, just like their female counterparts are. Because what happens is if they don't, it is setting the precedent that like, oh, like, you know, she's just like leaving the workforce and taking a vacation, which we all know that is so not what is happening. And two, when she comes back, she is at a disadvantage. We at, all at know risk. and at risk and oftentimes leaves the workforce and oftentimes is leaving the workforce because she's then calculating the cost of childcare. Right. This is not just a woman's problem. We need, it starts with men taking paid leave too. It starts with men coming back in the same way that she comes back, dealing with the same transitions back. That is actually how we start to create more of that equity, more of the transparency. Um, I think, you know, from there, then you're really, t you know, we can have a whole other podcast about <laughs> flexible work environments, but uh, then, you know, you're really talking about how do you create and set up systems that enable, um, enable more of a transparent work experience where we are all humans that, you know, hopefully have jobs and are, you know, employed. We also are humans that have other responsibilities. And, you know, I don't have children yet. Danielle is too. I also identify as the chief worry officer in my family. That doesn't mean that, you know, Danielle's stressors are more important or less important than mine's. It, mean, it means that we have different stressors and it means that our place of employment, you know, where luckily we get to set the policies, um, needs to be able to address and be flexible for both. And I think that's what we're really calling for here. Yeah, we're all working in a workplace that was designed by men mm -hmm. in many ways over a hundred years ago. And yes. our systems, our structures don't accommodate the pressures that we're all living under and the complexity exactly. of the lives of working moms. Um, one of the things that the report also addressed that I really appreciated is that, well, it sounds like you're childless right now. That may not always be the case, mm -hmm. but there are, and Danielle was talking about this earlier on, that there are a lot of women who are choosing not to have children. Yeah. Why is and a lot of couples who are choosing? Why is mm -hmm. that the case? What are you seeing in the data? I think we're seeing a lot of different things. I think one is for a variety of reasons, like her life milestones are happening at a later um on a later date than her did for her parents. So, you know, whether that's because she's getting more advanced degrees, whether it's because she can't afford her first home, uh, whether it's because uh, she's making 30% less proportionally than her parents did at the same life stage, financially, 
she and her partner are not necessarily um, set up in the same way that our parents were to be like, okay, I'm now at this milestone age, time to, you know, do that thing. And that is a huge factor for many of her. For others, because she's also, you know, delaying these life milestones also comes into play, like the realities of a biological clock. Fertility treatments are, you know, more popular than ever in terms of things that, you know, she is dealing with. And there's both the physical, financial, and emotional cost associated with that. And then finally, and I think this is where, you know, we really want to stand behind her, many of her making the choice to say, this isn't for me. There's a lot of factors that that go into why, but she is choosing to say, you know, I, I feel lucky to have that choice and I'm making that choice. Yep. And I think that is just as important. And when we talk about, well, the state of women, and we talk about, again, that chief worry officer title, I want to really underscore the chief worry officer doesn't equal mom, chief worry officer equals woman. Mm-hmm. And it equals all of the burdens she is feeling in all aspects of her life. And so, you know, I think there's a variety of probably very personal reasons why she hasn't necessarily chosen to have a family. But um, I think it's really important to understand the economic ones and also the ones of choice. Yeah, certainly. Danielle, one of the things that struck me about um, the study and the work that you're doing, not surprisingly, given the root of this is in delivering the news, is in politics and representation. Um, talk to me about the biggest findings that that emerged from the report about how women feel about um, the degree to which they're represented and what they're doing about it. You know, I think the biggest thing is it's it's not uh, shocking that women don't feel represented when looking at you know who is who is making up our political institutions. That being said, you know we are happy to hear that women are. Um, getting involved uh, at local levels much more than they have in past, and they're considering running for office, um, and they are getting more involved in their local communities. And I think that that is fantastic. And I, I think that that is a gateway to bigger representation opportunities down the road. Um, I also think, you know, there is um, the more that women get into positions of power in uh, companies as well. You know, we see that that leads to more diverse and inclusive environments, work environments. And I I think that one of the things that we've seen from our Show Us Your Leave campaign too, all about um, making uh, um, family leave policies transparent, um, is that when you see women get in these positions too, they are making sure that... um, the workplaces that they run are more inclusive and better set up for long-term success. So I think that that public-private uh, partnership, at least from a local level, of businesses reflecting um, the great things about women leading in positions of power and then women getting more involved at a local level, I think is is a really hopeful change that um, in a uh, report filled with a lot of things that that can drag you down. That was one of the things that I think really gave me a lot of hope for the future. So on that note, you know, it's not a presidential election this year, but um, I want to reinforce the importance of our local elections, what mm-hmm. a huge impact they have on our lives, on our workplaces, on the future of the country. And um, Carly shared those fantastic numbers about how many people you've gotten to register to vote and participate. So talk to me more about what the skim is doing to continue to support registering, being an informed voter, um, and what things we should think about 
regard how we should think about engaging in these upcoming local elections? Well, I think that the biggest thing is, first of all, get informed. And I think in today's world, uh, the more that you make yourself get informed, and we have a lot of products that will help you do that, uh, whether you have 30 seconds or, you know, 20 minutes, um, we make the most of your time. Uh, We want you to get informed and then we want you to act on it. And I think an action can be as simple as... um, identifying things that you care about and how they show up in your life. And it could be, you know, as complex as running for office yourself. But I think the first thing is, is learning more um, about what's going on, because I think learning more to, to us is kind of, um, it's, it's the gateway drug. It kind of opens up so many questions. It opens up, you know, the, the line of, of thinking that we talk about a lot, which is, but why? Like, but, but why is that happening? Why is that the case? And I think, um, fortunately, sometimes there are things you can fix. And a lot of it is how your, you know, local dollars are being spent or um, who is in charge of making those decisions. I also think in in today's, you know, political climate, there is truly no position that is too small and there is no position that is not important. Um, so while local elections used to be looked at as kind of like the down years, I think now they are the the biggest bellwether for how uh, and where money is going to flow, what issues are going to be important. Um, like who would have thought that like critical race theory would come out of heated local school board elections? Right. Um, so I think it is um, getting informed locally is the first step towards, um, I would say, being able to fix things on on a bigger scale. And also, as more and more critical decisions about our lives get made at the local level, being informed and voting is critical if you want to have a say in what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I want to circle back. Um, The two of you started out on your couch, but you're not the only two employees that you have. How large is the organization at this point? Um, We're just over 130. How have you shifted from being... um, you are all, everything, the two of you, and now you're employers and you're leaders. How are you structuring the climate, culture, and system within your own organization, um, given how informed you are about these issues? Well, I appreciate the question because I think um, it implies that we have figured it all out. And we have not, <laughs> which I think is the first step uh, where honestly, like, you know, so much has changed, you know, in our society and around kind of the expectation of of leaders and, and kind of the role of a company in today's political climate. And I think we are, you know, first and foremost, we are here to support our employees. Our employees, um, you know, are are diverse and are politically diverse. And, um, you know, since COVID, um, over 30% uh, are remote. Um, and so they're, they're across the country. Um, I think so much has changed in how we think about showing up as leaders. You know, if you, had, if we had met five years ago and you had asked us about, what do I think about remote work? You'd be like, we don't have remote employees. We had two who had been with us for six years um, and we made exceptions. Today, we have, you know, a very different outlook where today we're now a hybrid um, office and that has worked really well for us. And I think the thing that we, you know, have really just tried to take to heart is is two things. One, as as women ourselves and members of this generation of women, 
where would we want to work? What are the policies we want to have for ourselves that will um, that that we would want to have show up for us in a place of work? And I think what's so important for leaders is like, and even for those who you know are looking for employment and and evaluating a company's benefits, a company is going to be with you through some of your like best moments in your life, whether getting married or starting a family. And some of your worst, and that could be a a death, it could be a miscarriage, you know, it could be just life. How are they going to support you? And how a company creates their policies is very telling about how they will show up and support you. And so one of the areas that we have been um, particularly, I think, aggressive on is around family leave. Um, We created a family leave policy well before we actually had anybody in our team Uh, who needed it. Um, And, you know, I think that probably speaks to, you know, our gender and the things that we were thinking about at that age. But we um, ultimately, like that actually as a a brand and a company led us to start um, a campaign that we're incredibly proud of called Show Us Your Leave, um, which is actually, it was a call to action um, for originally our audience to share stories of what had happened to them on their leave and what that looked like when they didn't have enough of a leave and actually then became a call to action for companies to publish and to be transparent about their policies. So today, if you go to the skim.com slash show us your leave, you will find a database of over 600 companies that have published and in many cases changed their leave policies because of this initiative. I think that um, you know, that has been a, a huge, huge moment for us um, in, in a way to really show our employees that we want them to grow with us. I think the second thing as leaders that, again, we've had to learn how to adopt is flexibility. If you want to have women, especially, grow with you at a company, grow to the C-suite, become senior leaders, ideally, they're doing that with you over time. Ideally, they are also going through various life stages. We know all the reasons why women get pushed out of the workforce before men do. How do you accommodate that? You have to have some sort of flexibility. And I think one of the best things of COVID is that everybody figured out what it was like to work remotely, how to be productive, how to have flexibility. That was a forcing function for us. One of the worst things to come out of COVID is that many companies have completely reversed course on it and are, you know, in one sentence saying we are here to support a diverse um, and, and gender diverse as well culture. And at the same time are saying we need everybody in the office at their desk five days a week. And those two things don't work together. Now, the flexibility is key. I could ask you questions all day long, but unfortunately, we're out of time. If people want to learn more, where could they go? Check out the skim.com. We uh, have a variety of ways to make it easier to live smarter, and you can get more information about our State of Women report. Fantastic. Thank you both for the work that you're doing and for joining us today. It's really Thank you so much. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And for those of you listening, if you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. Many thanks, as always, to my fantastic producers, Dana Cash and Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks, and our analytics at Wharton team, Teresa Kosadek, Jillian Rogers, and Kyle Kearns. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone. To hurt inside, and we'll sh-